Good morning. It's good to be with you all this morning. My name is John Furch. I'm the chair of our missions committee here at Hope Church, and I have the, the privilege of kicking off our 2023 missions conference. A lot of you are with us next door uh, for the Sunday school hour where we got to hear from Spencer and Sammy Youngblood, missionary candidates to Germany. And we're going to continue that theme on through, through the week. So I encourage you to check out the, the series of events that we've got lined up for the conference. Go on our Hope Church website. Um, register ahead of time if you uh, plan to join us for any of these, these special events, whether it's the, the trivia night or the meals on Saturday. Great opportunities to come together and support and encourage our missionaries and learn from them as well. Next week, we'll have the privilege of hearing from uh, Dwayne King. He's our Bible basis speaker for the week, and he'll be with us on Sunday morning next week to give us a challenge from the Word. Dwayne is a guy that I got to meet and work with when we were in Alaska, and he's uh, got a, a long background in missionary aviation. He's going to come share, on a, share with us on this theme that we have of serving the nations. So uh, go ahead and sign up. Excited about the week ahead. Well, I bring greetings uh, from the church in Ethiopia. Uh, as you know, I was in Ethiopia last week uh, for a week and had a great trip. Uh, last Sunday, I was worshiping with um, Addis Baptist Church in the city of Addis Ababa. That's the capital of Ethiopia. I uh, was there for a week uh, building relationships and um, working towards uh, this partnership to bring the, the Word of God into a new language in Ethiopia, a people group that does not currently have the Bible in their language. And um, I got to, uh, to, to work closely. I got to meet uh, a young man named Ahmed. Ahmed is a, a man from this people group. Uh, he's, he, he's only 16 years old, uh, orphan boy, raising his two brothers, but he's come forward as one who's interested in helping us with this translation project. And so uh, in, the, in, the, in the years ahead, we're going to be uh, training and discipling him. Uh, he's actually a, a, a Muslim man. He doesn't know the Lord yet, but we're praying that the Lord will work in his heart. So he already is drawing him, drawing him close to our partners in Ethiopia, and he's really interested in this, in this uh, opportunity to learn God's word and translate it into his own language. So prayers for that are appreciated. It is a difficult project. No known believers that we have met, that our partners in Ethiopia have met from this people group, but we're pray praying that God will plant his seeds as we, as we plow the fields and as we make his word available. Also got to meet Korea, a young Christian lady uh, from a Muslim background, but she's going to be working closely with Ahmed, training him, and I'll be training her and, and mentoring them through this translation project. So I was asked to give a little bit of a summary of my, my time there. So that's what I was doing for the last week. But it's good to be back with you now today. Serving the Nations. So I was thinking about our theme and thinking about the nations of the world. There's a lot we could say about the nations these days. We're, we're now on the one-year anniversary of the, of the big invasion of Ukraine by the Russian Federation. And this, this conflict that many thought would be kind of a, a flash in the pan and uh, Russia coming in and doing what they wanted. We're now a year into it and there's, there's no end in sight. 
as you know, as you probably remember, a year ago there was there was uh, great international outcry as as um, the the Russian army came into territory that that they claimed, but that was a a sovereign state, and um, many things have happened since then, uh, boycotts and embargoes and and things like that going on as the world wrestles with what is going to happen. And about a year into the conflict now, we're starting to see kind of the major geopolitical ramifications of this going on as we, as we see that, that the West, the West meaning the United States, Canada, Europe, uh, have, have, have by and large thrown their resources into Ukraine and been supporting Ukraine against this, this invasion by, uh, by Russia. But it's not necessarily like that around the world. A year into it, there are some countries that are, that are beginning to say, now, now, wait a minute, who's, who's really in the right here? And there's this sense we have here in the U.S. that, uh, that the whole world is, is supporting Ukraine, but there's a growing, growing sense in some areas of the world that maybe it's not a fully one-sided story. In Africa, where I was, a lot of the sentiment is, well, wait a minute, why should the, Ru- the West be so quick to, to defend Ukraine when they have problems, when all of these problems going on here in Africa kind of go unnoticed by the rest of the world? And there's a sense that maybe this is, this is an East, uh, the, the, the West versus the rest. And this geopolitical maneuvering as nations of the world Try to figure out whose side am I on, who do we need to support with this ultimate idea of who are the emerging superpowers and who is the greatest nation and where is the power in the world and where do we want to align ourselves. And nations like India and South Africa and even Brazil with some strong economic ties to, to Russia and strong resistance against the, the imperialistic colonial legacy of, of, of Europe, saying, hey, maybe, maybe the, uh, the rest of the world kind of needs to stand up for itself. The point I'm making here is that the nations of the world are constantly vying for power and influence. It's a constant game of who are you going to align yourself with in order to come out on top. How are we as a nation going to conduct ourselves for the good of our people so that we can have as much power as we can nationally? The world order is shifting. The superpowers are, are kind of developing and emerging. And, and uh, while the, we have the United States holding on to our, our, our 50, 70-year legacy of after World War II being kind of number one, there are nations that are quickly rising and wanting to wanting to vie for a piece of the pie so to speak the nations are constantly constantly uh, struggling in this in this power balance thing this is nothing new this is something that's been going on for as long as we've had politics and nations and kingdoms. So I'm not saying there's anything new here going on. I'm just saying as we observe the way the nations conduct themselves, it is a constant struggle for power, a constant desire for 
for glory, for land, for whatever resources you can amass to come out on top. And that's true on the national scene. And we can see that kind of on the personal scene as well, can't we? There's something intrinsic to human nature that, that makes us want to struggle for power, for glory, for honor. Makes us want to be great, to do something great. That's in all of us. We have this desire to keep moving up, moving up the social ladder, whether it's, whether it's at work, at your job. What are you going to do? Who do you need to befriend to, to, to climb the corporate ladder, you know, so that uh, as, you, as you get further and further on your career, you're, you're, you're on that upward track? Or maybe it's just on the playground or in the family. I see this even in my own family with, you know, the sibling rivalry, the constant drive for, for attention in the family or in the classroom. Who's going to be the, the valedictorian? who's the teacher's pet, who are the cool kids. Across the, across the spectrum, it's intrinsic to our nature as human beings to want to be on top, to find those positions of power and authority, to make something of yourself, to look out for yourself, to do something, to do something great, to leave a legacy maybe. It's not all necessarily bad per se you know the nations of the world trying to take care of their own and make sure we're in a good economic footing yeah you have to do some things that that might uh, put the other nations at a disadvantage but we got to look out for our own people right it's just part of the ebb and flow of the human existence and this is something that has happened you know throughout human history in our scripture Today that we're going to look at in Mark chapter 10, we see a very similar dynamic playing out among Jesus and his followers. And we see that there is this constant desire to make something of yourself, to make your life count for something. And that's the question that Jesus' disciples pose to us that we can ask ourselves this morning too. How can we achieve greatness as Jesus' followers? How do we make something good of our life? How do we achieve those positions of power and authority as Jesus' followers? All in good intent, we want to do something great. We want to make something of our Christian lives. How do we do that? That's what we're going to look at in our, in our story today. As we meet Jesus and his disciples on the road to Jerusalem. How can we, as his followers, achieve greatness? Uh, you might want to turn with me to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 32 through 45 this morning. And what I'm going to do is introduce our theme verse for the conference, Mark 10, 45. But to do that, I have to give you the whole story, and we'll build up to it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you the story here that we have. You're, you're welcome to follow along in your Bible. Mark 10, 32 is where we'll begin. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was leading the way. And the disciples were astonished and amazed. And those who followed with them, they were afraid. 
And so Jesus took the twelve aside. And once again, he began to explain to them what was about to happen. He said, look, we're on our way up to Jerusalem. And when we get there, the Son of Man is going to be handed over to the chief priests and the experts of the law. And they're going to condemn him to death and turn him over to the nations. And those Gentiles are going to mock him and spit on him and beat him and kill him. And on the third day, he's going to rise. James and John, the, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus. And they said to him, Jesus, we're going to ask you something, and we want you to promise to grant us whatever it is that we're going to ask. And Jesus, Jesus said to them, what can I do for you? They said, Jesus, when you take your throne, we want you to promise us that we can sit on either side of you, one on your right and one on your left. And Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Are you able to receive the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? They said, we're able. And Jesus said, you will drink the cup that I drink. And you will receive the baptism that I receive. But it's not up to me who gets to sit on my right and my left. That's for the ones that it's already been prepared ahead of time for. When the other ten heard this, they were furious with James and John. And Jesus called them all together and said, You know that the ones that are considered the leaders among the nations love to throw their weight around. They're great ones. Love to flex their muscles. Exert authority. But that's not how it's going to be among you. If anyone among you wants to be great, he needs to become a servant to all the rest. And if any one of you wants to be the first, he needs to make himself a slave. Because not even the Son of Man came to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the end of our story here from Mark. Let's unpack it a little bit. Let's reflect on this story and talk about what it means for us as we ask ourselves that question. How do I, as a believer in Jesus, make something of my life? Achieve that greatness that is in all of us desiring to achieve. Uh, first of all, we can establish a little bit of the background. Who are the characters that we see in this story? What are the, what are the people that we encounter? What's the cast of characters? Up at the top, we might put Jesus, right? Jesus, because this is all surrounding him, we see Jesus leading the way to Jerusalem. And then around him, we've got a whole supporting cast of characters. Who else emerges in this story? We've got Jesus. We've got James and John. What, what are James and John? What's their relation to Jesus? They're, they're two of his disciples. In fact, we know that James and John are kind of part of this, this uh, inner core 
of disciples. As Jesus was pouring into the twelve, there, there was a smaller group that really gravitated to Jesus, um, where he really invested in them. And we see them on top of the Mount of Transfiguration, for example, just the three, Peter, James, and John. So they were kind of Jesus's, Jesus's real inner core. And then we've got the rest of the ten disciples who kind of get mad, right, and get furious. At, uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. But then there's even broader spheres of discipleship around Jesus, aren't there? Did you notice uh, in, in, the, in the opening uh, part of the, the story, they were on the road, Jesus is leading in the way, and it says the, the, the disciples were astonished at what Jesus was doing, leading them up to Jerusalem. And the others that followed were afraid. Notice that. There's the 12, the, the 12, right, who are astonished. And then the others that followed. There's a wider sphere of followers that Jesus has amassed who are excited about his work and his ministry. And they're kind of following on the periphery, listening in, uh, gleaning what they can. There weren't just 12 disciples. We know elsewhere in Mark, Jesus actually sends out 72 into Israel to announce the kingdom. So Jesus had a wider sphere than just the 12. So we've got Jesus then we've got James and John, then we've got the other ten, and then we've got the wider sphere of disciples around him. Anybody else in this story? Those are the main acting characters. There are a few people who are mentioned who don't actually do anything in the story. There's, there's the leaders in Jerusalem, right? And then there's the nations. This all happens in the context of the nations, the Gentiles, and the expectations of the disciples for Jesus's relations with the broader sphere of the world that they live in. So that's the cast of characters. We might call Jesus, James, and John as the three main characters of this story. We know that because they're the ones that speak, right? They're the only ones that, that really speak in the story. So they're the three main characters, and the story centers around them and their relations with these other disciples on the road to Jerusalem. So that's the character. Now let's talk about the setting a little bit. Let's set the scene. Where are they when all this happens? They're on the road, right? Everything about how much discipleship can happen on the road. It's an important context of discipleship here in the book of Mark as Jesus, as they're on this constant journey, traveling through the land of Israel, Jesus is pouring into these 12 guys plus the others on the periphery who are interested. Um, and they're on the road. But there's something unique about what happens this day on the road, isn't there? We've been in Mark for a long time as a church, studying through the book of Mark. Pastor Clint's been taking us through Mark. And we, this, is, this isn't an uncommon sight to see Jesus with the disciples on the road. But there's something special now about where they're going, Right? Where are they headed on this road now? Not just any road. They're going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And that's the second important place in the story. They're on the road, but their destination is important. Why is the nation, the, the, the city of Jerusalem an important and notable destination for them here? What is Jerusalem? Does anybody know? Even today, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, right? The capital, 
the, 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 the center of God's people on earth back then. It was seen as the, the, the city that David had conquered and made the center for the Israelite kingdom. And Jesus is on his way to the capital city. So there's the road, the capital city of Jerusalem. Within Jerusalem, there's some discussion of some important places, right? The throne. The disciples are thinking about what Jesus is going to do when he gets there, aren't they? And they say, when you take your throne, give us the seats on either side of you, right? Jesus and James and John. So within Jerusalem, there's some important locations. And then surrounding Jerusalem again, we see what? The nations looking in. And Jesus' influence over the nations when he gets there. So we've established the people and talked about some important places. Let's unpack what happens in the story a little bit now. What happens? This story, we can divide it pretty nicely into three three main sections, I think. Um, three main sections, which I'll call the prediction. The prediction that Jesus makes as he's on his, on his way to Jerusalem. The presumption, the presumption of James and John, this presumptuous question they ask. And the prescription, the prescription, Jesus' response to James and John at the end. So we'll talk through the story uh, in these three sequences and just unpack what is really happening here and what is its significance to us as fellow followers of Jesus, fellow pilgrims on the road, so to speak, the road of life, following Jesus. So the, the prediction, the prediction. Jesus is on the road, and what happens on the road? We see Jesus, and he's actually leading the way. Mark makes a special point. Jesus is leading the way up to Jerusalem. And how do people respond to this? Why are the twelve astonished and amazed at what's going on, do you think? Why are the rest of the followers a little bit afraid, nervous? Any guesses? Mark doesn't spell it out for us here, but he gives us enough clues to kind of understand what's going on. Why is there this tension about the journey to Jerusalem? Well, we've established that it's the capital city, right? The center of the Israelite kingdom. The seat of the expected place of God's ruler on earth is Jerusalem. And who is Jesus? Well, just a few chapters back, the disciples have acknowledged who they believe Jesus to be. The disciples have proclaimed, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And when, some, when they say, you're the Messiah, that means you're the one that we're looking for. You're the promised king, the son of David, the heir to the throne. That's what it means to be the Messiah. It literally means the anointed one. So, the heir to the throne is now leading this, this little ragtag rag band of followers on the path up to Jerusalem. And they've heard his teaching. He's been announcing the good news of the kingdom all the way along, right? Repent, for the kingdom of God is near, going back even to the, the message of John the Baptist. 
So there's been this sense all tied up in Jesus' ministry that something big is about to happen. The people of Israel do not have political independence right now. The people of Israel are under the power of the Gentiles, the Roman nation, the Roman Empire. And they've got a puppet king, Herod, on the throne. But they're longing for that promised one to come and deliver their people, grant them independence, and usher in the true reign of God on earth. This literal age of peace and prosperity where God's blessings are poured out on his people and they extend to the nations and an era of universal salvation as the nations come and bow before the Messiah in Jerusalem. That's what's bound up in the, 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 the hearts and minds of these people as they're following Jesus. And they've seen his power and what he can do. And they want to be a part of it. And they're excited. And then he starts leading the way to Jerusalem, right? And what do they start thinking? Oh, boy. We're doing this? Is it time? Wait, Jesus, don't we need to maybe uh, get some weapons together? Don't we need to, to maybe recruit a little bit more to our cause? Don't we need to uh, build up a little more political goodwill on our side? We're, can we do this yet, Jesus? The disciples are astonished. They, they, they know who he is and what he can do. And now they're on the way. And the, the, the followers, they're kind of wondering, boy, is this... Is this when I need to kind of kind of book it? Because I, I don't know that I don't know that Jesus is ready to, to take this throne. That's their expectation. They've been excited about this coming kingdom, and they they've proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah. They're not sure they're quite ready for this, this path to Jerusalem quite yet. Now, how do Jesus' plans align with the crowds? Uh, expectations, the expectations of his followers here. What do you see in his response to this amazement and this astonishment and this tension that his followers feel? What does he do when he, when he senses this from them? He calls the twelve aside and says once again he begins to explain to them what's about to happen. This isn't the first time that he's done this. Going back, we're in chapter 10, Chapter 8 and chapter 9, same thing happens. He gives them a little bit of a clue about what's really going to happen when they get there. It all started when they proclaimed him as Messiah. Shortly after that, he starts giving them a clue that it's not all going to pan out the way you're expecting. What does he say? The Son of Man is going to be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. They're going to condemn him to death and hand him over to the nations. So he predicts that it's not all going to go the way you are hoping and expecting. They're expecting a conquering king to come in and subdue the nations, to put Rome in its place, to take the throne and reign as the rightful heir to, to David's lineage, and Rome come and bend the knee, right? Along with all the other Gentile nations around. That's the, that's the follower's expectation. But what is Jesus' plan? He says he's, he's not going to Jerusalem to take a throne, to be served by the nations. He is on his way to give himself up to the nations, give himself over to the Gentile. He doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to go to Jerusalem. 
He could keep building up political goodwill and, 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 and develop the political might to, to make a true play for the throne one day. But he has a different plan. He's on his way not to make the nation submit, but to give himself up to serve. You see, God has a different plan for how he's going to bring his kingdom, his rightful rule, his salvation to the nations. And it's not through making a political power play. The Messiah is on his way, but he is going to give himself up to the nations. So he kind of turns their expectations on their head with this prediction that he gives. So that's the prediction. Then we have the presumption. The presumption. James and John come to Jesus, and what is their request? We want to sit on your right and on your left. What's the significance of this? Well, they don't quite get what Jesus has just said. Jesus has just said he's going to be turned over to suffer and die. And they kind of just kind of pass over that. It's like it doesn't even register on their radar screens. If you look back at chapter 9 and chapter 8, where Jesus makes similar predictions, it's the same story. He tells them, but they don't quite get it. You know, don't you, don't you find that that happens sometimes when, when um, you're expecting something totally different that you don't even get the signals that um, you're, you're, you're so wired into what you want to see happen that you miss all the signals and clues that that's not quite going to go that way. They're so excited about the Messiah coming and vanquishing these Romans and putting them in their place that they are immediately skipping ahead to think about, okay, wait, wait he's going to be on the throne. What does that mean for us, his followers? And we're not just, we're not just this, this group of, of ragtag people following along. We're part of the 12, right? And not even that, he had us up on that mountain with him a few, a few weeks ago where we saw him in his true glory. So we're something special to Jesus. He's probably got a special place for us. So, so they, try to, they try to square it away ahead of time. Hey, Jesus, we're on our way. Just promise us that when we get there, we can have these positions of power and authority which is what the right and left symbolizes, right? The king needs his entourage, his, his, his governors, his support, subordinates who, who, who have power and influence in the kingdom of God one day. And they are vying for these positions of authority. They are, they are playing this game, trying to, trying to corner him, pull him aside, get him to promise this to them, trying to guarantee that they can make something of themselves in God's kingdom. Now, they're his followers. Their heart's in the right place. But they are, they are thinking of it all in the wrong terms. They're thinking of this, this, this game for authority uh, and thrones of uh, all in the world's terms of how you get power and amass recognition for yourself. They ask to sit on Jesus' right and left because they want to make something of their lives. They want the recognition and power. 
Now, why does Jesus say this? It is interesting. He says, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. And then he says something kind of cryptic. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink and receive the baptism that I'm going to receive? Now, drinking a cup, that, that could be a good thing or a bad thing. Sometimes a cup is a symbol of joy and celebration. And maybe that's what Peter and uh, what uh, James and John have in their mind when he says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? They're, yeah, we're going to be at the party with you, Jesus. When we get to Jerusalem, we'll drink that cup. They've missed what he just said. What cup is he really talking about here? It's the cup of wrath, right? The cup of suffering. The one that the prophets spoke about in the Old Testament and the one that just a short time later when they get to Jerusalem, Jesus is going to pray three times, Father, if you can, let this cup pass by me. It's a cup of suffering. This baptism, he's not talking about water baptism, which he had received from John the Baptist, and presumably some of his followers had received the same. He's not talking about the water baptism, he's talking about the baptism by fire, being immersed and plunged into deep pain and suffering in order to follow the path that God set in front of him. Disciples are thinking, yeah, we'll be at the party. We'll drink the cup. Hey, we're, we'll, we'll take that baptism. And they're, 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 they're ready and excited, right? They miss the, the point that Jesus is making. Wait, if you want to sit on my right and my left, in my kingdom, the economy of power is different. In my kingdom, it's not the people who are the most prestigious and glorious and worthy of recognition that get those seats on the right and the left. Who is it that's going to get the seat on the right and the left of Jesus? Well, we see that in the final, the final section of the story, the prescription, where Jesus prescribes a path to honor for his followers. You want these seats on my right and left? That's not really up to me. My father's got someone. He, he knows who's receiving these seats. It's been marked out for them already. But I'll tell you what's going to characterize those two people on my right and my left. And it's not going to be the strongest and the biggest, the most conniving and crafty and creative. The other ten by now, they're, they're listening in and they're furious. Oh, I can't believe they made this power play. I was getting ready to ask him the same thing is probably what they're all thinking, right? They're all vying for these seats of power, trying to make something of themselves. We've been following this guy all around Judea and it's finally going to pay off for us, right? Who's going to get those seats? Well, how does the world measure greatness according to Jesus here? He talks about what the nations do. The lords of the Gentiles, their rulers, they like to exercise their authority. They like to throw their weight around. That's who rises to the top in the world. That's what we see on the, the international political scene today. That we see, you know, Those nations that have the resources and the strength and the, the population and the economic might, they'll throw their weight around. A country like Russia can invade Ukraine and the other nations can throw their weight around and the U.S. can, can send over our tanks and Germany and you know, all the news we've been reading. It's... it's Political clamoring for might and influence and strength. That's how the world figures power. 
But that's not how it's going to be among you. When he says you here, who does he mean? You, my followers. You, the people of God, versus the Gentiles who love to flex their muscles. No. In God's economy of power, these seats of influence go to the servants. The ones who are willing to follow Jesus in his own example of service. How does Jesus win the nations? He doesn't go to Jerusalem to take the throne. He goes to Jerusalem to take the cross, to lay his life down on behalf of the nations. He gives himself over to Rome, and in doing so, in doing so, he wins that throne in the end because God's going to hand it over to him. He wins their salvation by lying his life down on their behalf. He says, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom. It's, it's, it's a payment for, for someone's freedom. He's going to lay his life down and give his life up to win the freedom not only of the, Gentile, the, the Jewish people, but many, the, even the nations here that are conspiring against him. What does that mean that he's going to give his life as a payment for their freedom, a ransom payment? It's not saying that, that um, he needs to, to pay somebody off. Uh, sometimes we imagine like, you know, Satan's holding the keys to their jail cell and Jesus needs to pay Satan off by giving up his life. That's not, that's not it. They're slaves to sin. They're condemned to, to die by God, the king of the universe, who does not abide sin. And Jesus is giving his life as the ransom to set them free from that sin that has enslaved them. That's the ransom payment that's made. The life of the, the perfect king, giving up on behalf of the many, who can't pay it for themselves. And what does he do? He challenges his disciples to take the same attitude. No, you don't need to give up your life as a ransom. That's already done. But you need to have this attitude of service just like me. You want to sit on my right and my left in the kingdom? Those seats go to the ones who have the same heart of service, of servitude of giving of themselves, not for power and glory, not taking the seats of authority and, and, and glamour, but being willing to serve, to live as a servant. Those are the ones who will be recognized. That's the economy of power in God's kingdom. That's how greatness is measured in Jesus' kingdom. Those who are willing to serve. So back to our question, how do we as Jesus' followers make something great of our lives? It's a great ambition. We should all aspire to greatness, but we should recognize it's not through the world's economy of power. It's not by taking those, those positions of glory and honor and vying for the best seats in the house. It's through service. It's by giving of ourselves for the good of another. You might not even go be recognized for it. God's, Jesus' followers achieve greatness 
by following his example of service and of sacrifice. There's three, three truths we can draw out of this story. Three ways that this can, that I, that, that, that I see here that this can impact our lives and can even impact uh, what we do in the week ahead of our missions conference. First implication here, our missionaries are worthy of honor. Our missionaries that we support as a church, we've invited three of them to the conference this week to spend time to learn from them, yes, but to bless them and to honor them, to encourage them in this difficult task that they've given. Um, you know, the world does not have a high opinion of missionaries. It's kind of a silly thing in the eyes of the world. I remember one time um, uh, in high school, I was at Francis Howell Central my senior year, and I was sitting in um, the, uh, the American government class that we had to take, and I, I forget how the conversation went, but, but somehow it, it came out that, uh, that my parents were missionaries, and I was trying to explain what that meant. Well, there, there are people who, 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 who want to see churches established in places that don't have one, and, um, and I remember uh, one, one girl uh, sitting a few rows over, she's, she's listening to me tell about this, and they're like, they have to do that? <laughs> this this, this <laughs> flabbergasted discussion. Another another girl, thankfully, she kind of came to she came to my age. She said, "Yeah, yeah, they're they're that's their job, just like my dad's a pastor, and they have a similar job." So she kind of defended me, but I I remember that the the the, the way her words kind of cut into that. That sorry, they, they have to do that. That's the way the world looks at missionaries. It's not an honorable profession, but as the people of God. We recognize their sacrifice. They put things on the line for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom. They've made that sacrifice. They've gone to serve others. They've said you know, they, the, many of our missionaries could have um, a great and promising career if they had just stayed home and used their skills in the, in the marketplace, in the workforce. But our missionaries answer to a higher calling They've all heard the same, uh, the, had the same tug on their heart that Spencer and Sammy shared about it with us earlier today. That, yeah, you could make a lot of money here in the U.S. as a dentist and as an IT professional, but the Spirit's pulling them somewhere else to serve others rather than to make a name for themselves. Our missionaries are worthy of honor. So this week, Take that opportunity to honor our visiting missionaries. That can mean a number of different things. Invite them out for a meal on the side. Uh, inquire about their schedule, when you could connect a little bit. Or just spend some time at our meetings encouraging them, letting them know how much you appreciate them. I remember growing up as an MK, how blessed we were by different individuals at the different churches we would visit. People who would maybe... Invite us over to swim in their pool for an afternoon. Well, it's not the time of year for that. But just ways you can bless a missionary family just by making yourself available. Maybe a little, uh, a little financial encouragement that you, you slip into a card while they're visiting or something like that. Something a little bit um, uh, above and beyond the, the faith promise support. Different ways we can encourage our missionaries. So I encourage you as you get to know our missionaries this week. 
find ways to encourage them, to honor them, and say that, hey, I see what you're doing, and I respect that, and I want to honor you for answering this call to serve the nations. So our missionaries are worthy of honor. Implication number two, our practical talents can make a huge kingdom impact, can't they? The skills that God has given you can be used to serve the nations. Sometimes we think of missionaries as those who are equipped to to preach and share the gospel and proclaim the word of God. That is an important role for missionaries, but not all missionaries have that role. You can use the skills and talents that God has given you. Even if you're not a public speaker, you'd never stand up on a platform. You're not comfortable relationally, maybe, building, building friendships across cultures. But God has given you skills that you can use. We have all been wired in unique ways. And God wants to use those skills of service. Ways you can serve behind the scenes, even. That people won't even see you, but you can invest into his plan to reconcile the world to him. What might that look like for you? We've ta- we, we, we heard from Spencer and Sammy, not going as, as preachers and, uh, and big evangelists, but going to use the skills that God has given them as an IT professional and a dentist to bless others in Germany and be a good influence and a witness for Christ. That's really all it takes. It doesn't have to be a, uh, a full-time thing even. We can find opportunities to go and invest in the lives of our missionaries on the field using the skills that God has wired us with, even on a short-term. Mission trips, opportunities to go and experience and get involved. And that leads us to our third implica- implication. We are all called to serve the nations. We're all called to serve the nation. We are all followers of Jesus on the road of life. And we are all called to have this attitude of service, of making ourselves available to Jesus. How do you want to use my hands and my feet today? For some of us, it's a matter of filling out the the, the faith promise card in your envelope. Take this home this week and think about how God is going to have you serve the nation's financially, but it goes beyond just financial contribution. I challenge you to think about ways you can use the skills that God has given you to invest in our missionaries overseas. Two of our young ladies are raising support right now to spend their summer in France. What are they going to be doing there? They're going to be helping French students learn how to speak English, and by doing so, They're going to be sharing the love of Jesus through those conversations that they have. That's an example of how we're all called and we can all use the skills that we've given. We've been given to serve the nations. You ever think of speaking English as a skill? Well, it is. God can use something as simple as the language you speak to draw others into a relationship with him if you simply make yourself available. So take some time to think about how has God wired me uniquely and why did he give me these skills, these talents, these experiences? It's not an accident. God has a plan for the way he's designed you and you are part of that all-encompassing plan 
to reconcile the nations to himself. So in going to Jerusalem, Jesus' followers, they expected something great. They imagined him taking this throne of David, forcing the nations to bend the knee. But in God's sovereign plan, he turned these expectations on their head. Rather than subduing the nations, Jesus was going to submit to them. God's reign on earth was to be won through service and sacrifice. Jesus challenged his disciples to follow in this example of service. And we, we're, we're modern day disciples. We're followers of Jesus just as they were. And the challenge rings true for us today as well. We're heirs to this same challenge. He intends his disciples to change the world, not through might and power and glory, but through service. So think about that this week. How will you serve the nations? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, this example that you've given us on the road to Jerusalem. This reminder that you came not to be served, but to serve and give your life as a ransom. And we pray that you would help each one of us consider what that means individually, how we can participate in this plan to reconcile the nations to yourself. We thank you for your plan, and we want to make ourselves available humbly, not for power and glory, but simply to serve and be a part of what you're doing in the world. In Jesus' name we pray.